Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. My name's Liz Murphy, and I'm joined with the wonderful Dr. Min Fox. Hello, Min. Hi, Liz. How are you? I'm good. It feels like it's been a long time since we were behind the mics. It does feel like it, doesn't it? Yeah. I've missed it. Yeah, have you? I have. I always get a little bit kind of, oh, God, this microphone sitting in front of me, and then it it disappears. Yeah. I would agree completely. And it disappears, especially when we get to talk about the work of one of our colleagues out there. And tonight's interview is about domestic violence. It is. It's a a domestic violence story from actually a domestic violence service, yeah? Yes, this is a wonderful service that gets to work with women and children um, over a period of months, sometimes years. And one of the things that I wanted to highlight before we listened to her was you and I were talking before we recorded about how often people think all we want is for the violence to stop and then everything's okay. Yeah, just leave. Why doesn't just, she just leave, Why well, doesn't she just leave? It would all and be better for her it would if be she just left. Fabulous if that happened. Yeah. But this story actually highlights the intricate and complex work that this social worker does with the mother and the family. And one of the things that I wanted to to I guess to highlight is that often when we think about domestic violence, we we focus on a number of forms of domestic violence, predominantly physical, psychological. Yeah. One of the things I really like about this story is that it focuses on the impact that domestic violence has on the relationship with mother and child. And often that doesn't get talked about and it is a profound impact that domestic violence can have. Absolutely. Um, and, and this story highlights the work that the social worker does in the reparation work um, between mother and child. And she uses some amazing strategies um, that we'll get to hear about and, and now and then we'll come back and we'll unpack it. Absolutely. And just before we do, I guess I just want to say that for those listeners who uh, maybe are new to the domestic violence field or haven't worked in it for a while, just a bit of a refresher that we're not always just talking about physical, emotional, psychological violence, that there are nine forms of violence that can actually occur. And that uh, it's really important when we think about impact on the family that we go beyond the traditional notions of domestic violence. Maybe that's just something for people to listen out for while they're hearing the story. Sure. Okay, let's hear it. Um, this is a story, um, this is Lisa's story, and this is a story of herself and her three children. When they first came to the service, uh, the children were in late primary school and the youngest was just beginning primary school. They came to the service because um, at that time she was still in, um, she was still in a relationship where her partner was violent. Uh, They initially came through another social worker at the service and they came to join a group that we called uh, at that time. 
Their attendance at that group was off and on, and the attendance generally at the service was off and on. And that's not unusual when women initially make contact with a domestic violence service. Uh, She then disengaged from the service for quite a period of time, but later was referred again to the service by one of, I, I think it may have been through the department. At that time, she was um, referred to the service because her two elder children, she had just left her second violent relationship um, and her two elder ch- children were truancing from school. And the main issue was what to do about these children and the fact that um, at that time she was still trying to deal with post-separation violence from the second partner. Melissa had been suddenly moved from um, a familiar area where she lived to um, the catchment of the service. The children had been pulled out of school quite abruptly with little information or discussion with them. and there were lots of issues that, you know, about the domestic violence, they were highly emotional. Um, the children, as I said, were truancing from school. Uh, there was quite a lot of aggressive behaviour between the children. The relationship between her and her children had pretty much broken down. Um, and was struggling with really understanding what what had happened to her. Um, There were a lot of services involved, facts, or just uh, school, um, the truancy. I mean, it was just a a whole suite of services. But everyone was really worried about these kids not going to school. I remember at that time taking it to supervision because um, it felt like that all the services around the really didn't know what to do or where to go and so I felt like I'd joined the throng of of services not knowing what to do with this family and what was decided from that supervision was that we would just go in and really not try and push because the agenda was very much to get these older children back to school so uh, what was decided was that really would go in and make friends with the children um, because it seemed like pushing the children and having that as the focus wasn't, um, wasn't, wasn't having any success. So what I did was arranged home visits, which was unusual, unusual for this service, but it was something that we decided to do. And it wasn't about... Um, quizzing children about why they weren't at school, but really seeing it from their perspective. So my thoughts were these children had never been actually properly informed before they left um, their where they were living in Sydney to this new area of Sydney. They had never been told or really asked about that they would be changing schools, they'd been changing their community. They had no knowledge because the family had to abruptly move due to safety. So my first initial thing was just really to go in to the home environment and set up a relationship with these kids. And what we did was I took board games 
and we played for for an hour. We had afternoon tea. I'd bring afternoon tea, and then we would play board games. The purpose of this was really to create relationship, and it wasn't about um, asking lots of questions of the kids. It was more about just playing games, and that's what we did for an hour, for about two months, to be honest. And it was it was a fun time. Sometimes there would be opportunities to ask what they thought about school, what they thought about um, being moved to an area, uh, what made school not a place they wanted to go. So they were given an opportunity to, to actually say no one had ever told us, no one had ever asked us. Um, it had never been child focused. It was just the pressure had just been you need to go back to school. And through that, actually, also the playing of the games modelled for mum because of the domestic violence. What we know for women is that that may, not always, may impact their capacity to parent because they have spent so much time trying to keep kids safe, keep themselves safe, that emotionally it's just too much or too draining to be available for children. And at that point, there was was right there she was dealing with so much just the move um moving from a very unsafe situation um and finding safety that she had not she just found it too hard to be emotionally available for her children so in that hour what i guess was modeled what her opportunity was is was just to to be with her children and it was through play which we know is regulating it was through laughter which we know is regulating it was just about having fun and she would say to me just a little bit that she would also see some of the things or the way I talked to the children and then try them a little bit when I wasn't there initially her eldest daughter and her youngest daughter would sit in on the games but her middle child who was a boy uh, he sort of refused he would stay in his bedroom but as time went on we noticed that he would um, peek around the corner so he came closer and closer to the experience and then eventually would sit at the table he never actually played the games <laughs> um, so that was the initial involvement and I guess the other part of that was really building trust with me because um, she had so many workers telling her what to do rather than workers stepping alongside her that she really needed to get to a place where she felt like she could trust me, that I wasn't going to be critical of her parenting. I wasn't going to say that you just need to get these kids to school. I then asked her if she would be engaged with our, we were running a group, it's an attachment relationship based um, parenting program that we run at the service. And the service believes that for children impacted by domestic violence, it's a really appropriate parenting program because it's not behavioral based, but it actually um, enhances connection and relationship. And the research and studies show that that is the greatest, uh, the relationship is what gets impacted by a vi the violence of the perpetrator. And when um, ma the safe parent and children have given opportunities and capacity is built to enhance that um, relationship, they'll do better in the long term. 
Um, and through that eight-week program, you could see her thriving. Um, she just grew from week to week. Uh, one of the things that our service has done is added um, a domestic violence lens. So we also look at how the domestic violence or the violence of the perpetrator will impact that basic circle of attachment. Uh, and also what we introduced in that program was a very beginning five minutes of mindfulness. So allowing women to learn a way of emotionally regulating. In actual fact, I said that was the greatest benefit of the group, which wasn't what we expected. Um, and it was, a, it was called Stop the Mindfulness, um, that bit of mindfulness, and it allows a pause. She found herself a chair in the house, and whenever she felt really emotionally aroused and couldn't manage some of her behaviour or her responses from her children, she would go and sit in the chair. And she would do the stop mindfulness, and that allowed her to recompose herself. So then she would be in a position to um, be able to respond with some choice to her children. At first, the children pushed back. Um, they would say to her, is this some counselling technique? <laughs> I remember that. Um, but because she was so consistent and determined, um, they began to go along with her. Um, the other thing she really uh, held on to from that group was something we call being with, and that's really holding and accepting children's emotions. So rather than trying to get children out of emotions such as anger or sadness, she would stay with her children in that. So the pause or the stop meditation or mindfulness allowed her to grow that capacity to be with her children's emotions um, and acknowledge her own, which of course, if her, especially her boy got really angry or um, aggressive with her, she could not go up with him. And that's something that when she came into the service we'd seen, they would emotionally um, get dysregulated and so would she. But through that program, through the mindfulness, through, through really her determination to build that pause into her way of responding, she was able to hold her children's feelings. And things really moved rapidly through that program. Um, her children became more regulated. Uh, they didn't have, there wasn't as much aggression from her son towards her. Um, there was another point where he would always call her um, the C word, which she really um, reminded her of her ex and would make her very upset and very emotional. And some towards the end of the Circles of Security, which is an eight-week program, she was able to stand up to her son and say, put a take charge of the moment and put a boundary and say, you will, you will not call me that again. It was a, that was an incredible... Um, I guess standing point for so she could take charge of the parent because the other thing we notice for women impacted by domestic violence taking charge taking putting in boundaries being the adult with children is sometimes hard because it looks like their ex 
because he's taken charge in a mean way and they don't want to be mean. But she, through the program, could see that taking charge was necessary and she didn't need to be mean to do it. Um, but the kids, unfortunately, the two elders still didn't go to school. <laughs> so we had changed the home environment quite a bit. It was calmer. Um, they began to eat meals together more regularly. They were able to um, not get so emotionally aroused, but still the children refused to go to school. So I had recently done quite a bit of uh, reading and had seen um, Brene Brown speak. And she talked about wholehearted parenting. And it, her way of looking at it is if as parents we live the life that we want our children to lead, we, that will ultimately get our children to come along and, and live those lives. And we talked about what did she want to do? Because also she had had quite a lot of pressure that she had to go back to work. And she felt that meant that she had to just go get any job. And that is actually often what the um, going back to work reemployment programs do say, you just have to get a job. So I was really curious about that and said to her, why do you just have to get a job? Like, I don't just get a job, any old job. You know, I have a choice. So, so why, didn't she, why couldn't she have a choice? And that was like, oh, so I have a choice. And I said, oh, well, I can't see why not. And um, so we looked at choice and she said, well, what she really wanted to do was actually be a nurse. She had been in, um, in aged care and she had been good at it and... Yes, she's, I can imagine. I thought at the time, yes, she would be wonderful at it. And so what she decided was, actually, she didn't have to go back and just find employment. She could go to training and that would suffice Centrelinks, whatever they, you know, things they have to do for Centrelink payments. So she decided rather than just go back to work, she would go and retrain. So she enrolled in TAFE. And what she said to her older kids is after a lot of discussion and counseling she decided that she would two days a week she would say to them I'm now going to TAFE I'm packing my lunch I'm packing my bag and you need to do that too even if you don't I am going I'm taking your youngest sister to school because the youngest child was still going to school and I expect you to also go to school um and it was really for her going out on a limb because she wasn't going to wait around to see if these kids went to school. She was just going to go to TAFE. And what was the most amazing thing within a couple of weeks, the kids also went to school. So through that act of this is what I'm doing, this is what I want to do, this is what I'm going to study, it's going to be really hard and I'm going to be doing that, they followed suit. and. Um, by the end of, I think it was about six months, the two elder children were back at school and um, she was at TAFE and the youngest child was at school as well. So it was, um, for all the services around, it was an incredible, I guess that was a real feat for her. Through going to TAFE, beginning to have success at TAFE, she did extremely well because aged care really is her thing. I think it's worth really knowing that then did graduate from aged care and um, did
did get a job in aged care and has been extremely successful in aged care. Um, to the point where she uh, she almost couldn't believe it herself. She she got promotions. It was like, oh wow! And um, so I, for our service, that's ultimately if we can get women back in the community, holding down a job, that's an amazing achievement on her behalf. the gentleness of the intervention. I like the way that this social worker, oh, she takes it to supervision first up, I think. Oh, yeah, let's start there. And I thought that was a really useful use of supervision. She felt like she was one of many services working on or at this family. And in the course of that supervision session, she came up with just gently approaching the family via home visits, um, which she said isn't commonly done at that service. That feeling when you're the one person questioning what everybody else is saying or thinking in a case conference situation or a situation where there's all these services talking about the poor person in the middle, right? Uh, I think that's a really common feeling, Liz, for social workers, right? That they're the lone voice making a different statement. I liked how she kind of used that in supervision as her way to kick off what her next plan for intervention would be. She used it as an inspiration point mm-hmm. rather than a rather than a, something that could maybe deafen her or quieten her down. Mm. She also focused on the children yeah. and I thought that was um, so important because this story for me highlights the associated losses that that family were experiencing as a result of having to leave the violence. Now, so often we focus on safety at all costs. And whilst I understand that, I also think that we have to think about the associated losses for those children. So schools, circle of friends, community. Absolutely. Local shops, whatever it was, they hadn't had a voice in this move. That's right. I think she focused on that. She acknowledged it and through... I love the use of games. So two months of board games. She quietly sat with those kids where they were, didn't she? So instead of saying to them, you have to step out of your surroundings, you have to be forced to go to school and do what's expected of you, she came to them and when she actually named it as a child-centred approach, didn't she? Mm. And I really liked that, that actually she literally got down onto the level of those kids and started very quietly, slowly forming that trusting relationship. And in and amongst that, Mim, she was role modelling communication yeah. and connection with the children. Um, and role modelling it for the mother, right? Yeah. Because actually that's the loss that also is not really talked about is that you know that common feeling that well he's a really good father I should stay in this relationship because he's a really good father but that unacknowledged impact on the bond between 
the mother and the children and the capacity for that mother to parent in the way she really wants to be parenting. Absolutely, Mim. That's yeah. what I think really doesn't get talked about, which this social worker so beautifully was able to model for that mother and encourage that mother to come around to. What were some of the other strategies that you appreciated that the social worker used? You know that notion of just showing up and being there? I think that being part of the furniture, I think, is a really key social work skill that doesn't get talked a lot about. Just actually being a, being a facilitator and almost validating what's happening in the family home without even having to say it. By being there, it's actually creating validation. I was so pleased for this social worker that the service she was working in gave her that capacity because, as we know, a lot of services are not doing home visits. Mm. Definitely in Australia that's decreased. And we know that short-term care is cheaper for organisations and services to do than long-term care, right? So I'm, I was actually quite heartened to see that the social worker could engage in that way. Mm, I was too. I also really valued the group work that yeah. the service or the social worker was able to offer this woman, um, which I think is so important with women who experience domestic violence, to hear other women talk about their experience to because so often you feel like you are isolated and there can be a lot of shame around it. To be sitting in a group where it's shared again we've talked about this in the past that you cannot put a price on on the value of that Um, and then the use of the group to uh, look at parenting but also ways to emotionally regulate so there was the again it's the modeling isn't it but it's also strategies yes Mm. so I mean this is the circle of security group uh, a group that looks at she said enhancing the relationship between the mother and the child. It's quite a well-known group, right? Like this is actually a program that operates definitely widely in Australia. Right. Um, My understanding is internationally as well. Okay. Yeah. And it's got an incredible reputation actually, Liz. So when I hear practitioners speaking about the circle of security, I know that it's quite highly praised. Right. Yeah. The attachment is the strongest part about it. Right. And I think she talks about that. Yeah, she absolutely That's the does. basis of the group. I'd love to learn more about it, actually. The other uh, element that, that she mentioned is the use of mindfulness. And that, too, has become another popular practice uh, or a strategy that social workers are using increasingly in their work. It has become a popular strategy, but and it's become popular more so generally, right? A very old practice that has become popular. But... Uh, I always find it interesting that social workers get asked to do these things or find themselves in situations, but we don't train in it that often. So there has been a number of research studies and publications done around social workers using mindfulness or or, uh, relaxation techniques in their practice. But we don't routinely, and some programs I know do weave it in, but we don't routinely expect social work students to go and study mindfulness right? No. And that, again, makes me think that this social work is quite special because she's incorporated mindfulness in her life. And I think that makes it far more powerful. I actually think that's vital for it. So in the same way, like I hear 
if somebody says to me, go and meditate, that what happens fe- to you, fills me with fear, Liz. I have tried meditation. It is not my thing. That's not to say I haven't found ways of being mindful in my life, but the idea of actually undertaking a daily practice of meditation is not something I'm capable of or feel uh, attracted to, right? So it makes me go, well, I think it's okay that we're not training social workers across the board in mindfulness practice because in the same way that not all people that we work with are going to respond to mindfulness techniques, not all social workers will be able to actually teach those. No, but a good social worker uh, informs themselves around strategies that are that will be useful with their client work, right? Definitely. So definitely. one of the things that I, I liked about this social worker is it sounds like she provided a bit of a smorgasbord of yes. emotional regulation tools, if you like. Yes. And this particular woman had her pause. The pause was very valuable for her. Um, that so mindfulness she... chair, can I just say, oh, yeah. what a technique. What a technique. So the kids are screaming, they're going nuts, and you turn around and go and sit in your mindfulness chair to regulate your emotions. Such control. Oh, such control. That would take me years, not an eight-week circle of security course, let me just say. <laughs> I, I mean, the other thing is it would also be very self-caring for that social worker. So it's kind of like... That's right. It's a, There's a holistic parallel. approach to both her practice and all her, also her self-care, right? Yeah, I think that's true. And that's true. authentic. Oh, absolutely. And I think two months of sitting playing board games with that family... That social worker has gotten to know that mother, right, mm. on a quite an authentic, deep level. Mm. So I think that's actually also where this is coming from, that there is a connection between these people that's about well-being in a much more broader sense. Yeah. Yeah. And you could actually see that in that conversation about wholehearted parenting. You remember where she actually, there was a shout out to our Americans famous social worker Brene Brown and then the um, she was talking about wholehearted parenting and saying to the mother what is the life you want to lead you get to get a choice what job you would like I choose what job I do why don't you get a choice as well and listening to that I just thought how powerful is the concept of choice when you've had to leave an unsafe situation which of course safety is always paramount right you've had to make that really difficult decision. You're now in that next phase where you now have to create stability and a future for you and your children. For someone to come along and give you the gift of choice and autonomy in your life, mm. that's amazing. And it's also, um, it's also a social worker who is the embodiment of a particular theory framework. We'll just a moment here as our listeners will ponder which framework is Liz referring to? Which, which framework, Liz? Which framework? So this is trauma-informed practice in its essence. A hundred percent, Don't you think Liz. she, there's no way she had to label it, but I felt the need. No, 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 we have to label it because for all those people out there who are thinking what's actually underlying this practice that the social worker is engaging with, Absolutely trauma-informed practice, for sure, for sure. Child-centred approach in trauma-informed practice. And on that note, shall we finish up? I think we should. 
I think we should. Um, before we do, I think we need to just say that there is a conversation you and I would like to have, which is about we've been throughout this podcast talking about our beautiful colleagues as part of our tribe. We've talked about sitting around a campfire and we've been inviting our colleagues to international colleagues to send us messages haven't we to send us reviews and comments and let us know what they think about the podcast and their practice and the stories they're hearing and we're really grateful for that and one of our uh, beautiful colleagues sent us a message saying why were we using those terms that across the world maybe that's not always heard in the same way Mm. and so it's probably a good time Liz for you and I to actually have that conversation why we're doing that I like that review, actually, for that very reason. Yeah. I think we've talked about it before we started recording. We've talked about it with Ben and Justin and Danika. And I guess I use the word tribe because, for me, I have a shared... I think the social work community has a language of its own, a culture of its own um, a practice it has a number of rituals that are very um, I guess close to my heart and that was a metaphor that I have been using for years and years and years Um, and I guess yeah I guess it feels right to me to to call my people tribe part of a tribe yeah I think that's I think that's really fair Liz I um for me, the campfire is a connotation of safety and inclus- inclusiveness. I um, have a lot of memories throughout my life, but especially as a kid, of going camping and sitting around a campfire. And it, in the everyday busyness of the work and lives that we lead, for me, harking back to an idea of a campfire takes me a bit out of that, takes me to a place where... I'm with people that I know and love and feel safe and feel inclusive, that everyone's welcome at the campfire. It is comforting, isn't it? It is, isn't it? So for, I think, I think it's, um, it's nice to be able to share that with our listeners, actually, to be able to say this is where we're coming from. If you have other phrases that you think you refer to your social work community in, then let us know. We'd love to know what are the words or phrases that make sense to everybody else because mm. They're our words. That would be cool. That yeah. would be really cool. Yeah. So uh, I think we're going to have to say goodbye. But on that note, keep it coming, people. Send us those comments and reviews. We love to hear from you all. Um, we're uh, at SOWK Stories Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, so uh, send us a line or you can email us directly as well, which uh, we'd love to get into a conversation social work stories podcast at gmail.com so many ways to connect so many ways i love it have and, a, and and i guess we'll be doing this again in a fortnight's time i was so going to we'll say have connect. a good couple of weeks i will you too yeah maybe you know go and try sitting in a mindfulness chair why not while my daughter's going nuts okay uh, well i'll ask you about that in two weeks time then <laughs> Um, or maybe we'll just... I thought you were just about to say om then. I was like, okay, um, here we go, om. On that note, need to say thank you to the wonderful Justin Stesh and the fabulous Ben Joseph, our producers on our podcast. We've also been joined by a ghost, Danika Thomas, 
tonight, uh, which has been fantastic. And um, look forward to hearing everybody in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, see you then. Enjoy, Liz. Bye. Bye.